Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. In the two years since Podcast Royal hit the airwaves, we've talked about just about everything when it comes to the modern day royal family, but never the queen mother. Here today, we have Gareth Russell, author of Do Let's Have Another Drink, The Dry Wit and Fizzy Life of Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mother, out as of November 1st. The book has 101 anecdotes about the woman described as a marshmallow made on a welding machine. I hope somebody describes me that way one day, one for each year of her life. The queen mother is absolutely fascinating. She struggled with her weight. She hated the way she looked in photographs and she enjoyed, as she called them, a drinky poo, specifically Jeanne and DuPenay. The book's author, Gareth Russell, is a writer and historian who has written several works on royal history. He has contributed to The Times, The Daily Telegraph, and The Belfast Telegraph, as well as BBC Radio, BBC Northern Ireland, and The History Channel. Gareth, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So of all the people to write about, and even all the royals to write about, you chose the Queen Mother. Can you tell us why her? Yeah, I was always fascinated by her. I, I was a teenager when she died, that's actually how I end the book, that I was on Easter vacation, I think, in Scotland. I went to school in Northern Ireland, but um, she she passed away when we were there. And my late grandmother, May, absolutely adored her. She liked the Queen. She had grown up during the Second World War and the Blitz. And for her, the Queen Mother and her late husband, the King, were heroes. So, I mean, there's no question about that. So I grew up sort of hearing stories about the, the Queen Mother finding her fascinating. I remembered that moment when she passed away. And also, I think, as t- you know, this was the this year is the 20th anniversary of her death. I think we had moved further and further away from a portrayal of the Queen Mother that was necessarily very accurate. I don't think we there had been a book so far that celebrated her humor, but also her strength. And that's hopefully what Do Let's Have Another Drink does. Absolutely. And I'm going to challenge you this that I say this morning all the time it's this morning in the U.S. but it's fully afternoon in London sure. where you are so you should be fully awake for this question you wrote an entire book on her but if you could describe her in five adjectives what five, would they be? Uh, strong, uh, strong funny observant mm. uh, dedicated and uh, loyal mm. Oh, you aced that. Easy peasy. Thank you. <laughs> well, it's the afternoon. <laughs> there you go. That's what yeah. that's the difference between the time zones. So we know World War One happened during her teenage years. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about what her childhood was like and how she was shaped by that war? 
That's a great question. I think many people think of her because she was queen consort during the Second World War that they forget the First World War really was a formative experience for her. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of similarities between the Queen Mother's childhood and the world depicted in Downton Abbey. She was the daughter of an earl, the Earl of Strathmore. They had their their main home was a, a splendid medieval castle in eastern Scotland called Glam's that readers of Shakespeare may recognise as the home of Macbeth. So it's a very ancient history. It's allegedly one of the most haunted buildings in the British Isles. And I talk in the book about the ghosts that the Queen Mother believed she had seen when she was a child there. And they had a home in England and, and um, a townhouse in London. And she spent her time shuttling between those. She was uh, the youngest daughter in a very large family. Um, she Her sister Violet passed away sadly before she was born, but she had her sisters Lady Mary and Lady Rose and uh, her brothers to whom she was very close and it really is the relationship with the brothers that helps explain what the first world war did to elizabeth or lady elizabeth bowes lyon as she was then she emerged um, from a trip to the theater to see a russian ballerina she liked as a treat for her 14th birthday in london to see crowds celebrating that britain was at war with germany and austria at the start of the first world war that was her 14th birthday and her parents turned their castle and their english manor house into military hospitals and all of elizabeth's brothers bar the youngest david who was too young all of elizabeth's brothers went off to fight and her brother fergus was killed uh, leading a charge in in the first world war the other brothers survived, but they but they were changed by it. They had what was called shell shock then. We would now call it PTSD. Several of them had pretty severe drinking problems. They suffered from insomnia and night terror. So Elizabeth spent the, the years from 1914 to 1918, so the ages from 14 to 18, she spent seeing young men brought into her parents' homes wounded, and she also saw, you know, the, the terrible impact the war had had on her brothers. So I think this was, there was always, you know, there was a great love of life and a great vivacity in Elizabeth. But at its core, there was a great steel. She really was someone who, like many people who went through the First World War, had, you know, spent her teenage years seeing casualty lists printed every day. She said when she was 17, I remember thinking I can never be happy again because there were so many people that she knew who had died. She said of the 20 friends of the family who went off to fight, four of them came back alive from the war. So there was a great sense of steel and determination, but there was always, right up until she died when she was 101, there was a great deal of sadness about what had happened in those years and what had been done to an entire generation. And interestingly, you know, one of the the very few times she was seen to cry in public would be at the annual memorial um, service to commemorate the end of the war on the 11th of November. She would become quite visibly emotional. And one of the things I, I find out from, from doing the book was that... Um, she stayed in touch with a lot of the survivors who had been patients at her parents' hospital. And she would try to find them jobs like after the war ended. And in fact, one of them, a corporal called Ernest Pierce, wrote to her after he left the war and said, you know, they were struggling. So she paid for his children's school uniforms and she sent them groceries. And when he had recovered his mental health, she got him a job as a gardener on her estate with a cottage and him and all his children and his wife ended up working for her until the 1970s when they retired. So really, this the First World War shaped her in so many fundamental ways. And I try in the second chapter of the book 
to take time to share the key moments from that with the reader. Yeah, and Fergus must have meant so much to mm. the Queen Mother that she, because Queen Elizabeth II uh, was not born until 1926, so she would have never met Fergus, but Fergus must have been spoken of so much in the home that uh, the late queen actually named one of her her corgis one of the actually the, the Fergus um, was given to her I think in 2021 and so that shows you that obviously Fergus's death was so profound that he was probably always spoken about in the home even though the late queen never never met him and so I think that's those years were incredibly profound and to live through two world wars because you know the queen mother was born in 1900 so it's it's very easy to say what what age she is just match it up with the year but um I just I I just think it's important like you said to to remember that she lived through another world war as well absolutely I think that's so you're so right Rachel because I think from even for me you know an author goes on a learning experience hopefully when they're doing a book as well and I think the first world war is often treated as a slightly irrelevant prologue with Elizabeth but mm -hmm. actually it, what I what I find and from her letters that I quote in the book it really to me that that experience between 1914 and 1918 was pivotal Absolutely. Well, she and the Duke of York, later King George VI, ended up having one of the great love stories of the royal family uh, that's depicted in part in the movie The King's Speech, for example. But she was originally not interested in Bertie and actually turned down his marriage proposal twice before finally accepting on the third ask. So way to go, Bertie, for being determined as well as Queen Mary, Bertie's mother, who was intent on this marriage happening as well. So how did the two meet and how would you describe their love story? Well, the two met uh, when they were children at a fancy dress party thrown by the, a Scottish aristocrat called the Duchess of Buccleuch. Uh, but they didn't really, they didn't remember each other. They were children. They met again later at an afternoon tea organized in London during the war years, the First World War, by Lady Lavinia Spencer, who, of course, the, the name mm -hmm. rings bell. That was uh, Princess Diana's great aunt. They met and Elizabeth said, oh, you know, the Duke of, uh, the Prince, Prince Albert, as he was then, Prince Bertie is very nice. Uh, they met again at a ball at the Ritz after the war, and, and he didn't really seem to remember her. And then on the fourth meeting, they were at a ball of, of an earl in London, Lord Farker, and he. that's when they danced again. And he really, that something happened that night. He just seemed completely smitten. And he told one of his mother's friends, the Countess of Early, or, you know, I'm dazzled by Elizabeth Bowes Lyon. So they started running into each other at parties, tennis matches horse races and then when they were both up in Scotland in the summer of 1920 and 1921 he started to, to visit more and to go to you know country house weekends where she was and he really was I mean he was absolutely entranced by her he found her so refreshing he told their daughter yeah, he wrote a letter to the future Elizabeth II on the on the on, just before she got married to Prince Philip and he said, you know, to me, mummy is still and always has been the most wonderful person in the world when he was talking about his wife. Uh, and he he absolutely adored her. But initially, when he asked him, the first time he asked her, she said it's a study in tenacity. Uh, when, when he first asked her to marry her, Elizabeth really was not keen on the idea of marrying a royal. There's this sort of ridiculous rumour that's done the rounds for years that she wanted to marry the elder brother, the, the future Edward VIII. But actually what I found from diary entries and letters was that Elizabeth really thought the idea of marrying into the royal family was too much and that it would mean a life of public service 
And so she she harboured these doubts quite intensely. And she was encouraged in these doubts by her father, Lord Strathmore, who who was very strongly pro-monarchy, but he didn't really think that marrying into the royal family was a good idea. It was too much of a public commitment, and it, it essentially meant sacrificing a private life. But she started to fall in love with Bertie, and when he asked for the third time in January 1923, she said yes, and they were married that April. She really was, and she didn't like this being said, by the way, she did not like being given credit for a lot of his success, but Bertie was someone who had what we would now recognize as severe anxiety. He had had, when he was being brought up, his governess was in many ways abusive uh, to, to the children and hid that. She used to pinch him and make him cry so that his parents thought he was fussy and difficult. I mean, mm. and it was it was only uh, when another servant went to Queen Mary and said, you know, this is how she's treating Bertie. And then he had a terrible stammer. Um, and and Elizabeth, you know, helped him get the speech therapist. You mentioned the King's speech that beautifully dramatizes her role in getting him appointments with Lionel Logue, the unorthodox um, speech therapist mm -hmm. who helped him so tremendously. But she steadied that anxiety. And also, you know, with the best will, and without being too rude about them, George V in particular and Queen Mary were quite strict parents. And there wasn't a lot, particularly with George V, there wasn't a lot of fun. Whereas with Elizabeth's family, the, the Bowes Lions, there was fun. And so Bertie would go to Scotland and they'd sing around the piano and they'd, you know, have mud fights and they'd jump out from behind fountains and uh, splash each other. There was a good sense of, of relaxation and not taking yourself too seriously when you were off duty, but really putting duty first when you were in public. So Elizabeth was the backbone and the steadying hand for Bertie, and she absolutely adored him. And, and the successes of his reign, I think, are, are as much, if not more so, a tribute to her as they are to George VI. Mm. So continuing on to her relationship um, with with her family, you know, we always hear about we four and how close the two of them and their daughters, Elizabeth and Margaret, were as a family unit. The king once even called Elizabeth his pride and Margaret his joy. Um, can you tell us what the queen mother's relationship was like with each of her daughters? Elizabeth had a, the Queen Mother had a very happy childhood, and she wanted to replicate that for her children. She has been criticized, in fact, Princess Margaret criticized her for this, for not pushing them academically. And in part, this was because Elizabeth, the Queen Mother, when she was growing up, had quite a strict German governess, Fräulein Kubler before the First World War. And she really had pushed Elizabeth to excel at a series of, of exams, examinations that you could do as a private student. And Elizabeth had excelled at them, but she always felt that it was that, you know, it had it had been too strict. And she didn't want to push that on the children. When Elizabeth, her daughter Elizabeth became heir to the throne in 1936, she did start arranging history lessons and constitutional legal lessons with um, the Provost of Eton College. But she really was someone who wanted her children to have as happy a childhood as she had. So it was big on the outdoors and horses and dogs and all the things we would associate with the royal family. I have to say the childhoods of Elizabeth, Prince, the future Elizabeth II and Princess Margaret were, by their own admission, blissfully happy. And George VI just adored that time with we four, us four. 
they had a great sense of humor. They used to perform pantomimes together at Windsor Castle. They were a very close, very loving unit. The relationship obviously changed after George VI's death in 1952. And in general, she had a better relationship with Elizabeth II than she did with Princess Margaret. Uh, Elizabeth II, when they used to have lunch often, all three of them would talk in French when they had lunch together, which apparently used to annoy Prince Philip. And um, the and when they didn't see each other, the Queen would phone her mother two or three times a day. She was a very important advisor to Elizabeth II. But with Margaret, they had a very similar. Um, they they had they enjoyed. Um, meeting people, but both the Queen Mother and Princess Margaret were very outgoing, but their relationship was a bit more fraught, a bit more tense. Margaret said at one point that she wished her parents, well, she said her mother, she said, I wish my mother had thought to include me in the history and the legal lessons that Lilibet got. And in part, that was, Margaret had a tendency to blame that all on her mother. And that's partly because her father was no longer with them. That happens sometimes. The living parent is often blamed more than mm -hmm. the one who has passed away. But I think um, certainly Elizabeth and the Queen Mother and Margaret were also, they had a fraught relationship, but it wasn't an unhappy one. They really did make each other laugh. Both um, the princess and the Queen Mother loved to sing song. They both were excellent mimics with fantastic comic timing. Uh, I find, I heard a story from someone who, who'd worked for the royals that at Christmas, uh, Princess Margaret and the Queen Mother had had quite a, quite, quite a few gins before. And when the Princess Margaret, when the Queen Mother was trying to, to help her to take the um, vegetables and serve them onto her plate, she kept slipping the spoon and the peas kept flying up and hitting her. And Princess Margaret laughed so hard she nearly threw up. I mean, they had the, they, the two of them had this really incredible um, sense of comedy and fun together. So I the relationships could be strained as they can in all families, but fundamentally a very, very happy childhood that turned into a, to a close adult relationship. Well, in 1936, everyone in that family unit's life changed when Edward VIII abdicated the throne. How did the abdication, there's no way, obviously it couldn't, affect the new Queen Elizabeth? And what was she like as queen from 1936 to 1952? Well, it floored her almost literally. She, she had um, problems with a recurring pneumonia or bronchitis since the First World War when she first contracted it. But when the abdication happened, she Elizabeth was in bed. She found out um, that uh, her brother-in-law, Edward VIII, was going to give up the throne while she was lying in bed battling pneumonia. So she she really um, had to sort of drag herself out of bed to steady her husband's nerves. She took him to Sandringham, their estate in Norfolk, cancelled the Christmas broadcast for that year. They really went to earth, as they say, you know, they 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 disappeared for a few weeks for Elizabeth to steady her husband's trauma. That You know, he'd been given three days notice that he was going to become king and emperor. So that really did. Um, Elizabeth deserves so much credit for steadying the monarchy when she was ill and it was ill after the after the, the crisis of the abdication. She took her she took the duties of being queen very seriously and that became she was very in fact she 
confounded a lot of her critics who said she was never going to prove, neither her nor Bertie would prove as popular as Edward VIII. But she had these phenomenally successful early tours to Paris, Canada and the United States. And in fact, it's actually uh, Elizabeth that the press first used the title Queen of Hearts. The Washington Post called her that in a headline um, mm -hmm. after she visited America in 1939. But really, it was the Second World War where she came into her own. She refused to leave when the British cities were being bombed. Hitler called her the most dangerous woman in Europe. Uh, and if Hitler calls you that, you're doing something right because he was he, he was so intimidated by and frustrated and angry at the role she was playing in increasing British morale during the bombing raids. She was very nearly, he, he gave orders for Buckingham Palace to be targeted to try to take her out. And she she was adored and, and and really the people of that that service during the years of the war and particularly the Blitz really solidified her popularity for the next half century. And she was so she was a steadying role as George VI consort. She was the backbone in the monarchy after the trauma of the abdication. And she was the immensely liked. I mean, it, reading these accounts, they're in the book of people in the East End of London years later talking about meeting her and what she was like I, it was fascinating and um elizabeth was someone who who stayed in london at great risk to her own life during the bombing raids and very nearly paid with her life for it so she was a she was a tough and tenacious queen consort at a time when the monarchy and the country needed that mm. You talked a little bit about um, her relationship with Bertie and, and how she helped shape him. Um, the night before he died unexpectedly, he retired to his room and he said, I'll see you in the morning. It goes without saying that the loss was tremendous for her um, and she went on to live another 50 years. So yeah. how did she work through her grief? The grief shocked her i think in because she had hoped that he would have longer left he'd obviously been battling with cancer for some time but i think elizabeth really hoped that there would be that the operations that they had tried would have bought george the sixth just a little bit more time so there was shock as well as sorrow that affected her when her husband died what she did was she went up to scotland and she stayed with friends the viners and she walked. She used to go for long walks and horse rides along the, the Scottish coast. And she said the whirly wind, that cold wind, made her feel a little bit alive. But but she was really, really struggling. And uh, Winston Churchill, who was then prime minister, was concerned that she was going to retire from public life. And he thought with her popularity, she still had an important role to play in the monarchy under her daughter. And he considered it important enough that he went up to Scotland to speak to her and said, famously, ma'am, your country still needs you. And he explained to her that she, you know, she was 51. She was young to be a widow and that what she should do is to consider coming out of retirement and to, to go back to being a, a working senior royal. And she listened to Churchill's advice. And, and so her new style was Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mother. Well, as Queen Mother, she became the nation's grandmother. She was charming, someone everyone could fall in love with. And I learned in the book that the Queen Mother title prior to 1952 had not been used since 1669. So this was not common before the Queen Mother that we know from the modern royal family. So how did she, as you were just starting to, to go into this, how did she lean into this role? 
Well, you're right. So the Queen Mother was originally a title in the French monarchy, La Reine Mère, and it was imported to Britain by a French princess called Henrietta Maria, who married King Charles I in 1625. And when Charles I actually was executed in 1649, his French widow decided to use the title um, of La Reine Mère or the Queen Mother. And she kept that until the restoration of the monarchy and her death in 1669. It does not, a lot of people think that Queen Mother, I go into this a bit in the book because I think it is, it can be confusing sometimes with so many different types of queens, but uh, Queen Mother does not mean the mother of a queen. It means a widowed queen who, a widowed queen consort whose child is the current sovereign. So the first time it was used was for the mother of Charles II. And they were thinking about different titles and they suggested, well, why not Dowager Queen? And Elizabeth thought, you know, 51 Dowager was a bit much <laughs> um, mm. and it made her sound very old. So they looked back through royal history and saw Henrietta Maria's title of Queen Mother and that's how they, they used it. So I think that tells you a little bit that whilst she, she was very aware that she was a widowed queen, she didn't want to be seen as old before her time. She wanted there to still be a sense of approachability and zest to the way she, she interacted with the public. So I think that was part of why Queen Mother was picked over um, the Dowager Queen Elizabeth. Mm. Well, as bubbly and smiling as she was, she did not seem to be a fan of Princess Diana. Can you describe their relationship for us? I think the feeling was mutual. Initially, it was a very friendly relationship. Um, Diana moved in and lived with the Queen Mother after her engagement to Prince Charles. And the Queen Mother gave her a lot of advice on how to deal with the media. Obviously, you know, it was a different beast, the, the media, by the 1980s. The Queen Mother's advice to Diana was well-meaning, but outdated. When it came to that, she gave her one of her most famous pieces of jewellery, that gorgeous big sapphire that she wore with the revenge dress, and when she yes. danced John Travolta mm -hmm. uh, at the White House. So that was a gift from the Queen Mother. But things really started to, to, to sour towards the, the start of the 1990s. And um, for Diana, for, for the Queen Mother, the panorama interview that Diana did was abhorrent. And really, this is where the Edwardian thing kicks in. Uh, the, the Queen Mother could not ever understand why you would sit down and, and, and discuss your private life with a journalist. To her, that was just absolutely unbelievable and baffling. And she really felt that the things Diana said about Charles's future suitability as king were unforgivable. Diana told um, a friend of mine that, um, who, funny enough, I, the reason why it's fresh in my head is I, I was just with her, that um, this morning, that that you know the queen mother was a lot tougher than she looked and diana once called the queen mother the chief leper in the leper colony and she felt wow. that she was the the force of traditionalism and that, that you know she really she did not know they, they really by the early 1990s did not like each other at all and i think part of it was just a, a generational clash although that being said the queen mother um was heartbroken for william and harry at diana's death and she did keep a photograph of Diana and her sons in her room until she died. Wow. See, the book is so chock full of anecdotes like that. And another anecdote that I love from the book is that hilariously, the Queen Mother was a big fan of the TV show, The Golden Girls, which I love that. Love yeah. that. I so, love that okay. show as well. I love that show too. So here's a pop question for you, pop quiz question. Which of the four women from The Golden Girls do you think the Queen Mother is most like? I think she looked like a rose. Okay. I 
I think she had the observation of Dorothy. I think she had the um, storytelling ability of Sophia and the confidence of Blanche. Have you been asked that question before? That was I have not. Good. I have not. I have, Rachel, <laughs> let me tell you, I am never not thinking about who someone is like in the Golden Girls. <laughs> that, that was that's why. too good. That was too good. I'm, I'm impressed. I'm impressed. Great answer. Um, so another question for you. If you could sit down to a Jen and Debonair with Queen <sighs> Mother, what is one question you would ask her? That's a tougher question, actually, than the Golden Girls one. That one came <laughs> quite quickly. Um, I suppose I would ask her about some of the people, I mean, maybe some of the people she met. I mean, people like the Tsar's mother who she knew, you know, people who are just so far beyond um, our, our historical memory now would be extraordinary. I said, maybe, though, I would ask her, when when were you happiest or something? You know, I think I would love to hear a question that she had a freedom to answer on, if that makes sense, because uh, I, I just find her totally fascinating. Well, our last question for you, this has been such a delight. Is oh, thank what, you. What do you think the Queen Mother's legacy is, as you said earlier in the show, 20 years after her death in 2002? Yeah. I think the fact that the monarchy has survived at all was after 1936 and through the Second World War, that was a big part of her legacy. But I would say in the 20 years since she has died, I think the sense of family that she really impressed upon Elizabeth II did continue. And also she was incredibly close to, to King Charles III. She, she really... They had such a close bond as grandmother and grandson. So I think she would be delighted that her grandson was, was now king and, and has been greeted with quite a lot of support and affection in Britain upon becoming king. You let's have another drink. The dry wit and fizzy life of Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mother, is out now. Thank you, Gareth, so much for being here today. We really enjoyed chatting. Oh, with you. thank you so much. I've had a brilliant time. I really appreciate the questions.